Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the Actus Podcast, Talking CDI, the nation's only program dedicated to the clinical documentation improvement profession. The Actus Podcast is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and to Actus. Today, Wednesday, April 24th, marks our 121st program and frankly, the first program that we have with our new uh, name and logo. For those regular listeners, you may have noticed that our studio <laughs> is looking a little bit different today. And you may be wondering what happened to that really cool Actus Radio logo you used to love. Well, we've decided that after becoming a full-fledged podcast, which you can now listen to on the go via Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast listener of choice, that we were due for a bit of a refresh so there you go. We're now the Actus Podcast Talking CDI. I hope you like the new name and new logo. Just want you all to know that we won't be changing our commitment to bring you the best guests, news, and information related to our favorite profession in healthcare, which I hope is CDI, of course. It is for me. <laughs> so as always, my name is Brian Murphy, Director of Actus, the Association of Clinical Documentation Improvement Specialists. I'm, I'm in the upper right, and as you can see, I've actually removed my beard for this occasion. This was such a this was such big news, so I've refreshed my uh, my bio picture as well. And I'm joined today by a familiar co-host at left. We have with us again Sharm Brody. Sharm is a full-time instructor for our CDI boot camps, as well as a subject matter expert for Actus. You can see her bio there. She has more than 35 years in healthcare in a number of, of roles, including CDI uh, auditing and uh, consulting prior to joining us here at Actus. And I'm thrilled to have her on our very first Actus podcast talking CDI episodes. So welcome, Charm. Thanks, Brian. All right. And we also have with us at right um, a guest who's been with us once before. He was wondering why he was asked back, but I think we will, we will all enjoy today. Uh, Howard Rodenberg. Howard is the physician advisor for clinical documentation integrity at Baptist Health uh, down in Jacksonville, Florida. He's been an associate professor of emergency medicine at the University of Florida, EMS medical director, director of county and state health departments, and I guess he's also worked with NASA on the space shuttle program. That, that, that may, may or may not be fake news. We'll have to look into that a little bit later. He <laughs> <laughs> is going to be uh, presenting today's topic at the 12th annual Actus Conference next month in Orlando. So we've been uh, doing some build-ups to our conference and, and Howard's, uh, I'm sorry, looking forward to his session and looking forward to him today. So welcome to the program, Howard. Thanks very much. This will be fun. All right. Well, as we always do, and are going to continue with the Actus podcast, we're going to start with a poll question related to today's topic. I'm going to go ahead and uh, pull this up. And I'll go ahead and read that as well for our podcast listeners who might not be seeing all the visuals. But essentially, we're asking, has your CDI department led or participated in any type of research or claims data analysis in, within your organization? Um, your options are yes, no, but this is something we hope to pursue, no and don't plan to, either short term or immediately, maybe you don't know, or not applicable. Again, has your CDI department led and or participated in any type of research or claims data analysis within your organization? And your options again are 
Yes, no, but something you hope to pursue. No, and don't really plan to do that. Don't know are not applicable. All right, we've got, looks like about 75% of our audience have, have cast their vote. So we're gonna go ahead, the results are pretty stable at this point. We're gonna go ahead and close this out and we will, as we always do, come back to the results in just a few minutes. Okay, as I mentioned, our guest today is Howard, Howard Rodenberg. Howard, welcome back to the program and thanks for being a part of the inaugural Actus podcast, Talking CDI. Um, it's my pleasure, thanks. All right. You know, as I'm, I did mention already, this is our fourth program reviewing, uh, previewing our sessions coming up at our 12th annual conference to be held May 20 to 23rd at the Gaylord Palms and uh, it's technically Kissimmee, Florida. I've been saying Orlando, we're a stone's throw from Orlando. Um, Howard's gonna be presenting this topic in a 30 minute session in our new Idea Laboratory track along with another presenter who's doing um, some, presenting some research within their organization. You know, and Howard, I chose yours because your session description really intrigued me. You, you started it out with a little bit of concern for the future of our beloved profession. Um, and you had written, it's been said that the only constant is change and the CDI world is no exception. Advances in computer assisted coding, natural language processors, auto suggested queries and the increasing comfort of physicians with EMRs pose long-term questions for the current practice of CDI. I was hoping you can maybe elaborate on that a little bit more for our audience and maybe what technological trends you are seeing or have experienced that might have uh, been impacting CDI. Well, as you mentioned, they do say that change is the only constant and I've been involved uh, part or full time with CDI back since the paper and pencil days, the Bob Gold days, and when the idea of a query was you walk up to a doctor with a donut, you say, hey, don't you think that sepsis, write that down. So <laughs> we've seen the CDI profession continually change, change is inherent in any process. And you can even see that at the Actus annual meeting. I mean, we've gone from a traditional focus on inpatient documentation for the DRGs, and now we're looking at pediatrics, we're looking at obstetrics, new settings like outpatient long-term care facilities, new areas of quality and population health. And I think actually last week's podcast was about population health. So change is inherent in what we do. And it's you know reasonable to assume that as our job descriptions and the things that we do change, the technology that we use to do that changes with us as well. So you know, 20 years ago, you had a flip phone. That was a big deal. Nobody knew what a smartphone is. And now everybody's got a smartphone. Everybody in healthcare is tied to some kind of electronic medical record, and so we shouldn't be surprised if changes in technology keep affecting our work environment. And so now we have technology that's got the ability to sort through EMR records and identify likely CDI opportunities. We've probably all seen those programs which pick up on a particular word or phrase and not only can generate a question to the uh, CDI specialist, but it can also specifically generate a query independent of the CDI specialist. My personal view is a lot of this technology has got a way to go before it's real operational. But that being said, you know, the first smartphones had a way to go too, and now we live off them and we thrive off them. And so this technology is going to continue to advance. It's going to become better, it's going to be faster, it's going to become more accurate, it's going to become more discerning, and it's going to extend into all areas of healthcare, including the outpatient and the long-term settings. 
And, you know, if you're a hospital bean counter, the benefit is that the technology doesn't require days off, it doesn't require benefits, it doesn't require salaries, and it doesn't require space. So there's a definite technologic threat out there given um, what we see as emerging technologies within clinical documentation improvement. And I think there's another couple of other pieces in play here. One is that we have physicians who are now more comfortable with technology. Physicians of my generation, I'm uh, sadly in my mid-50s, uh, but physicians in my generation still remember fondly the paper and pencil days. And we're the ones who are probably the most resistant to the technology and to the EMR. The generations coming up after me don't know any different. And so a lot of the things that we do with physician education and trying to break through those barriers probably won't be a barrier. They'll be used to getting orders from computers and from getting auto suggestions for computers to getting red flags and roadblocks from computers. And they'll be comfortable just answering those without having any further um, need for, for CDI intervention. The other thing that happens is that as CDI programs mature, uh, it requires more and more effort in terms of time and money to get that last little ounce of efficiency. And if uh, I know some folks on this call are going to be clinical in nature, I like to think of this as the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. And if you're not clinical, forgive me, there's a business concept called the sigmoid curve, which works roughly the same way. But essentially, on the oxyhemoglobin curve, you put in a little oxygen and your hemoglobin saturation keeps rising, rising, rising until it hits about 91 or 92%. And at that point, the curve flattens out. It takes an incredible amount of oxygen, an incredible amount of effort to just raise it one or two points. If you've got a CMI, excuse me, a CDI program that's running at 85 or 90 percent, it's going to take increasing amounts of effort, increasing amounts of time and blood and treasure to get those extra couple of points. And those are points uh, that people may not be willing to invest when technology can eliminate the problem for them. And the other thing that I see is that the things we usually use to judge the success of a CDI program, things like CMI and other metrics, those are probably going to go away. I mean, we're, we're, we're seeing a huge shift now from inpatient care to outpatient care. If everything shifts out of the hospital, what happens to a CMI? Does it mean anything? Does it get diluted? Does it get inflated because it's only the most serious things? I'm not sure what these metrics we usually use are going to mean five or 10 or 20 years down the road. And so I think the question then becomes if the landscape is going to change, if there's this threat of automation, which I think is a very real threat, um, what do we do to secure our place in the future? And the one thing we can do that computers can't, that every time I watch an episode of Star Trek I'm reminded of, is we can think creatively and the computers can't. And research is essentially the act of putting creative thinking to work and finding new ways to make our mark, new ways to demonstrate value to the institution. And, you know, and I hope and pray that that creativity really winds up being our strength. Mm. That's great. Thanks for the picture, Howard. It's a little grim, but I think we have some maybe some good news to share about your presentation here. <laughs> well, <laughs> this is Sham, and I have, I have the next question for you. I think it seems like you believe CDI does have a strong future, but it won't necessarily be the profession that we had years ago. Um, like you just said, it won't be just day-to-day -day writing queries to the physicians. Your session proposes that CDI-led data research can help secure the future by demonstrating increased value to the institution beyond that traditional boundary of coding and billing. Can you talk a bit about what types of claims data research you conducted? Um, it looks like you conducted four different studies. 
Yeah, we did. We, we did four studies that made it into our publication in Perspectives in Health Information Management earlier this year, and four studies that we're going to present at the ACTUS conference uh, in Orlando. Um, I do think the future is bright. I think we need to think differently. I think we need to find new avenues to demonstrate our value, and I really think that research is one of them. So, yeah, there's some doom and gloom in there, but again, taking advantage of the creative thinking that we can do and applying that to a research setting, I think, helps gives us new avenues to, to, to do our work and to, to build our footprint within the healthcare institution. So we did four studies, and uh, when I mentioned claims-based studies, I want to uh, make sure that people understand this is nothing magic that people don't have access to. Um, I mean, we use our own hospital claims data. We have our own internal system. Every hospital's got theirs. We did our stats on an Excel worksheet and one or two free statistical tools. We used, um, I will admit to buying a copy of Excel for dummies, but it was helpful. Um, but the data we use for this kind of stuff is really basic stuff. It's patient identifiers, length of stay, DRG assignment, hospital charges, and virtually everyone has that in some way, shape, or form. So as I talk about these, I don't want to give the impression there's anything special about we did about what we did that people can't do at their own institution because everybody has claims-based data of, of some way, shape, or form. So briefly about the three studies that we did. The first one, um, and, and most all these studies, I guess I should say, came from just conversation. You know, they're not things that we said, gee, why don't we do a theoretical study on this? They come from conversation. And so the first one uh, was about uh, endotracheal innovation as a potential CC. Now, I still work clinically as an emergency physician. And, you know, it, all, it always drove me crazy that innovation for airway protection isn't a CC. I mean, it's clear that when you innovate somebody for airway protection, you uh, increase the level of monitoring, increase the level of care. So it didn't make sense to me why it's not a CC. So one of the things we were able to do is to take a look at um, some data and looked at patient groups which were innovated for airway protection and which were not within the same DRG group. So for example, patients with seizures, some may have been innovated for protection, some may have not, but they wind up in the same DRG. And what we found in fact, is while length of stay didn't change, probably because of the transient nature of the innovation, the uh, hospital charges uh, actually increased for those patients who were innovated. Well, you can use hospital charge, and there's some pretty good literature that suggests you can use hospital charges and lengths of stay as proxies for increased monitoring, increased nursing care. And so this kind of study sort of confirmed for us at least what my clinical intuition is, which is, well, yeah, that should be a secondary diagnosis uh, and probably and, and at least should be considered for a CC. And we think you can use that same methodology to look at different questions and different diagnoses to see if, in fact, they would meet the definition of a secondary diagnosis, and if so, they might be eligible for consideration for submission uh, to the coordinating committees as a CC. A second study that we did looked at differing sepsis definitions. I I'm, happen to be a sepsis 2 guy. I've written on the ACTUS blog that I'm a sepsis 2 guy. There's a lot of reasons I'm a sepsis 2 guy, um, but the nuts and bolts of it is, is you can't make that decision independent of fiscal and quality data. And so we would take, we identified 200 patients with sepsis 2. We applied sepsis 2 and sepsis 3 criteria to that group of patients. It turns out only about 35% of those patients met sepsis 3 criteria, which means that depending on your payer mix, if you switch to sepsis 3, you lose, you know, 60, I'm sorry, yeah, you lose 65% of your potential revenue for a higher pay in DRG. Uh, in addition, we found that the mortality rate went from about 12% in the sepsis 2 overall group, that if you narrowed it down to sepsis 3, your mortality went up to about 
So you're looking worse on quality measures. And again, I wouldn't say that quality measures and fiscal resources are the only reasons to make or, or reject a change in a clinical criteria. Uh, but if you have a tie between the two, that data is useful. We, again, are still a sepsis two institution for lots of reasons we could go into later or in a, at a uh, session at ACTUS. And then the third thing we did was, again, something that happened spontaneously as a result of a conversation with our utilization management folks uh, about what documentation could do to benefit length of stay. Uh, of course, we all know that, that, that documentation doesn't actually change length of stay, but what it can do is it can shift patients to a DRG with a longer allowable length of stay, so you less, have a less avoidable days. And we were able to use a peer comparison tool with media analytics uh, to figure out our performance versus peers, and we were able to demonstrate that with by, by improved documentation, we could resolve about 10% of the avoidable day problem. You know, it's, sometimes it's nice not to be the primary cause of something, and sometimes it's nice to not have to bear the large burden on your back, uh, and it's nice to be able to tell people what the limitations are of what you can do, but it also helps to build those liaisons and build those footprints throughout the institution. Right. That's some great stuff, uh, Howard. Uh, really interested in, in learning more about these at the conference. You know, we're, we're getting close to our end time here, but let me just, I know you're also, I think you might be doing another one on, on uh, morbid obesity, um, whether that condition, independent of any particular intervention, was associated with increased length of stay, care and monitoring. Um, anything on, on, on that one uh, in particular that you wanted to touch on as well? Yeah, I'll just, I'll just discuss that uh, even more briefly. Uh, basically, this again came up from a conversation about uh, whether morbid obesity should be a secondary, secondary uh, diagnosis, even if you don't do anything about it. So, you know, if you don't put somebody on a diet or you don't reduce their calories, is morbid obesity in and of itself a CC? And again, clinically, you know, my thought is, well, yeah, it should be a secondary diagnosis because bigger patients just are harder to manage all around. And so, again, we were able to take claims data. We were able to compare patients uh, within DRG groups who had BMI greater or less than 40. And we, in fact, found that hospital charges and length of stay were significantly more in patients who were obese, supporting the contention that, you know, maybe the presence of obesity all by itself, independent of any particular action, um, does meet the definition of a secondary diagnosis and can be used as a CC. Yeah. This is great stuff, you know, this is the, and, and um, it's impressive the, the, the work you've done, and I think I'm looking forward to seeing it kind of displayed a little bit more in full at the conference. Um, Sharma, I think you might have had one more question just about how Howard was able I to do. fit all this so, in, in, in his, yeah. Yeah, and that, that would be it. How did you make the case with your administration to do these studies? Um, well, how did it fit with the other duties that are assigned to not only the physicians, but the CDI staff? Well, I'm very fortunate because Baptist uh, Health here is a small independent organization, and because you're not reporting to somebody corporate up, you know, higher up the chain because you don't have 30 hospitals all have to be doing the same thing, there's a lot of flexibility and a lot of willingness on the part of administration to do new things, try out new ideas, have people do things a little bit out of the box. So I was fortunate that I didn't really have any problems freeing up some time. People recognized the value of it. I didn't have any problem getting top administrators to you know, furnish data and to, to let me use people's time. Uh, and again, it's fortunate that the tools that we use are tools that everybody's got. Everybody's got claims data, everybody's got Excel, and the statistical tools we use, and I'm happy to share them with people offline, are stuff I got free off the internet. So literally, anyone can do this. That's, well, that's great. Yeah. 
Um, again, excellent uh, work here, uh, Dr. Rodenberg, and I'm looking forward to again to learning out more about it at the ACTUS conference. And again, um, Howard's going to be presenting uh, alongside another facility that's also has some research to share. So we're we're very pleased at ACTUS to be able to bring you this type of of um, of independent work being done by some of our great uh, member organizations here and uh, excellent stuff. All right. Well, thank you. I'm going to jump. Yeah, I'm going to jump back to our poll question at this time. And again, we um, share that on your screen. People should be seeing that again. We did ask, has your CDI department led or participated in any type of research or claims data analysis within your organization? So here are your results. 26% said yes, 13% no, but something we hope to pursue, 21% said no and, and aren't planning to, 35% don't know, and 5% not applicable. Um, maybe I'll start with you, Howard. Any any surprises here with these results? About a quarter have, but um, um, most, at- most do not or don't know. No, actually, I'm a little bit surprised that that many people uh, have done research, which is heartening because one of the things that we're looking to do at our session in Orlando is find other similarly minded people and maybe put together some coalitions to do some better work and get some power in numbers. Um, I think the people who say that they don't do research probably don't realize that they do because anytime you ask a question that you try and answer with data, that's research. If you're just doing data just to print out a report, it's not. But I think most of these people who say that they're not do in fact use data to answer a question. And in fact, that's research. And so again, just raising the point that, you know, really anyone do, that can do this. And we most, most of us do it every day and don't even think about it. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. I, mean, I, I do think, you know, a lot of our members are using data in various ways, but maybe they don't consider that research. But uh, you certainly broaden the, the perspective here and on, on um, what can be done with that type of data. Any, any comments from you, Sharm? No, I, I, the part that's encouraging is the ones that don't know. So maybe they'll leave this broadcast and go back and see if they are, in fact. CDI's landscape is changing. So I wouldn't be surprised if you asked the same polling question a year from now if you've got different results. Right. Okay. All right, just a moment here, guys. I'm gonna switch over now to our next segment of the show, which of course is in the news, which we're still gonna be bringing you on the, uh, the Actus podcast, Talking CDI. So again, in the news is a regular segment featuring the latest news and industry updates relevant to the CDI profession. Um, actually, Howard, when I found this particular article, I did think of you because it does concern two hospitals from your relative neck of the woods in in Florida. I know Florida is a big <laughs> state, but um, this is from the Miami Herald, and it it's got the uh, title of "More Layoffs at Miami Hospitals as Patient Admissions Dwindle and Operating Costs Rise." Uh, so just to summarize, and again, I will provide the link to this article in the in the show notes post program, um, citing financial pressures and operating losses. Nicholas Children's Hospital and Jackson Health System, among Miami-Dade's largest employers, are expected to announce layoffs and other cutbacks in the coming weeks. In a memo to staff obtained by the Miami Herald, uh, Nicholas Children's executives said they will eliminate pay raises this year for all employees, reduce pension contributions, and limit new hires to workers who provide direct service to patients. 
the article does state that Nicholas Children's employs about 3,500 workers with employee pay and benefits making up about 57% of the hospital system's operating expenses. So you can see why they had to sort of reduce those costs. Um, a, a spokesman, Rachel Perry, said in a written statement that the cutbacks and layoffs are difficult but necessary to preserve the financial health of the organization. Um, what was interesting, I thought, in relation to CDI here was some of the reasons that they had to do this. Um, they, the Perry statement and the memo to Nicholas's staff cited changes in the healthcare industry that are causing pain for many hospitals, including, and quoted from the article, reductions in reimbursement, a shift from inpatient services to outpatient care, and financial pressures due to rising costs and increased competition. Um, so certainly some things we were touching on earlier in the show. And then we have a second uh, example from the same article. Um, this, this, so Mark Knight, the CFO at Jackson Health, offered a similar explanation for his staff reductions. You know, that this hospital has an annual budget of about $2 billion, but has been squeezed by two developments. One is more uninsured patients not qualifying for Medicaid. The other one is that insurers have been rejecting overnight stays for patients who come in through the emergency room and paying the hospital system significantly less. You know, this is a classic uh, paying, um, categorizing these patients as observations instead of paying them as overnight stays or short stay admissions. So things that most CDI professionals probably are, are familiar with or have had some degree of in involvement with. Um, you know, just to summarize, Howard, we did speak at the beginning of the show about some of these new pressures facing the CDI profession, but, you know, frankly, also some of the new opportunities presented as a result. You know, they're, they're working outpatient CDI, perhaps in, in uh, documentation to shore up the case for inpatient admissions. It's a little bit out of the box from what we traditionally see with CDI, but, um, you know, something that CDI may need to get a little more involved with. Um, yeah, and, and when I read that, Sorry. Oh, go right. Yeah, I was going to say when I read the article, I think the thing that struck me is that part about um, that part of the problem is a shift in reimbursement for the inpatient to the outpatient setting. And of course, traditionally in CDI, we have reinforced, and we should continue to reinforce good inpatient documentation. But I think you know these just reinforce if if the shift is towards outpatient care that we increasingly need to shift our CDI efforts to outpatient care, and not so much just the E&M codes, because when people think, think of uh, outpatient, they tend to think E&M codes and CPT codes, but also looking at denials. Um, that's kind of where we're focused here uh, in our CDI efforts on the outpatient is less on E&M codes. Every physician office has their own people to do that, but we're focused more on looking at denials and the process of denials, and the documentation piece of that is matching up appropriate orders with appropriate codes that support the medical necessity. So I think, you know, this does reinforce that shift that we're starting to see towards more outpatient CDI. I think we might have lost Brian there for a second, Howard. Uh, it sounds like it. So, um, oh, that's we all right. We can script? talk about. Oh, we can. Let's continue going with the script. <laughs> so we have done the poll results. 
And Brian's bringing up another. It looks like he's going to bring up that proposed rule that came out last night that I'm not even sure I want to talk about at all. But um, well, since he's not one of the here, things that not. I agree. Okay, <laughs> one of the things that I found very interesting, and we were discussing it this morning, with just even looking at this final rule with all the changes. Have you, with that opportunity to look at it, you saw the decrease in some of the statuses of some of the different conditions that they had. And we were talking how CDI is going to have to evolve and change. Um, and you stated that you saw it more coming in, into the outpatient arena. Now, can you elaborate a little bit more on how you're, what you're doing as far as the denials in the outpatient area? Well, what we've been doing is we've been uh, we've been trying to coordinate uh, the different people who do, do denials. So cardiology does one set of denials, and oncology does another set of denials, and you know everybody does their own set, and trying to coordinate them and figure out why those denials happen. Now, sometimes it's a process issue. Sometimes it's you know that somebody writes an order and it doesn't get transmitted to the right person to do preauthorization. That's not so much a documentation problem as so much of a process. But in some cases, what we're finding is that the test that's ordered uh, is not supported by the diagnosis that's put in the chart, or vice versa, the diagnosis is put in there and then the wrong test is ordered with it. And that strikes me as more of a documentation type issue. And so we're working to try and identify those instances to try to separate out process issues from documentation issues, you know, refer the process issues to where it needs to go, uh, and then where there is a documentation issue, work with physicians, providers, office staff, and hopefully even within our EMR, to build in better and more appropriate choices. Oh, that's, hey guys, that's this is Brian. Oh, okay. Brian, I was just going to do the closing remark. <laughs> yes, we can. <laughs> it's funny, my my headset dropped, so I'm dialing in with a with a good old regular phone. So there you go with well, this. See, this, it's this, live there's television. There's our technology spin on today's program. <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't tell you what, what we said. <laughs> I'm assuming it was good. Um, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're closing in on time. I was just showing here, guys, the, that the, the 2020 IPPS proposed rule is out. So, again, I will link to this in the, the notes from the show. We don't have time to get into it today. There's a lot in here. Uh, but the, the tables here I'm showing, some. this has got the CCMCC uh, list changes, and there are quite a few this year. Um, some significant downgrades, unfortunately, some upgrades, but quite a few changes that are worth reviewing. And we'll be covering this at the conference as we're able, um, as well as on future programs of Actus Radio. Um, maybe we'll stay just one more minute. I, I did want to, this, this was an interesting, so moving to our brief Actus update, um, you know, we, we did a recent poll on on the website, a fun and highly participated poll, one of our most participated polls about CDI professionals workspaces. So we had like 664 responses about where CDI professionals are, are, are working these days. Um, and uh, most are uh, in a dedicated space with 43% of respondents, 22% are working in the HIM coding department, 13% are 100% remote. We have about 12% working on the units. And then we've got some uh, other respondents in quality, separate building, or don't have a set location in the facility. So um, I thought this was interesting. I know, I know, Howard, you you see, I, I, from what I understand, you have a stunning corner, corner office and a mahogany <laughs> desk that you operate behind. Is, is that true? Yeah. No, I, I actually live in this little glass-walled terrarium with a ground-level view of the parking lot. I've got, let's see, I'm looking around here. I've got a couple of family picks. I've got two plastic potted plants. Uh, I've got a Star Trek poster, of course, 
And then uh, I've got a sign that I just recently got a new puppy, and uh, my coworker Jamie Dugan made me a sign that says Polly's dad lives here. So that's that's my palatial estate. <laughs> All right, just an interesting poll. We 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 do these website polls quite a bit on on Actus.org, so check them out. We we uh, we try to rotate them out at least every few weeks. So thanks to all the folks that answered this one. All right. Well, you know, that is going to do it for today's episode of the Actus Podcast, Talking with CDI. I appreciate you guys sticking with me through a few sound issues on our first podcast. We'll promise to be smoother as we move forward here. Uh, but you can see our next program in two weeks. We're going to be covering acute respiratory distress syndrome. So kind of getting back into it with the clinical topic. Um, this was actually suggested by a former listener, a uh, current listener, I should say, but was, was suggested formally. And this is how I get a lot of our show topics. So if you do have any suggestions for future guests, topics, or ideas about the format of the show in general, I, I'd love to hear from you and I will frequently use them. So drop me an email at bmurphy at actus.org. That will do it today, and uh, thanks, everyone. We'll see you back here in two weeks. Thank you again, Howard. Talk to you soon. Thanks.